Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Let's jump right into our weekend review. Last Sunday, Paula and I brought you the historic battle of Lake Erie. In 1813, at the same time the Napoleonic Wars were happening in Europe, America was still trying to push the British back into Canada after British seized control of Lake Erie. Then Wednesday... Ohio Mysteries Backroads with Dan and Mike brought you the second part of female pioneer and pilot Blanche Noise. Blanche went on to set many records and later was the leader of America's new air marketing program. Definitely check that one out. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. 19th century Ohio, with its multitude of medical colleges, was ground zero for body snatchers. We've done a handful of these stories before. They always give me goosebumps, and tonight we have Another extraordinary one for you, a chilling case that began in Willoughby, Ohio, and set off a chain of dominoes that revealed more victims, stunned communities in at least three counties, and sent half a dozen college officials to jail. We begin on September the 14th, 1878. That's the day that Edwin French lost his battle against typhoid fever. French was from Cleveland, a businessman associated with the Winslow Car Roofing Company and the Cleveland Steam Gauge Company. News reports called him one of the old settlers of the city, wealthy and respected. He spent his final days trying to recover at the home of his daughter in Willoughby. That's a city in Lake County, about 20 miles east of the city. When he took his last breath, he was surrounded by those who loved him. Two days later, funeral services were conducted at the Willoughby home of his daughter, Mrs. Bryce. In Cleveland, the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway Company, a 
attached a special car to the 11 o'clock morning train leaving the Union Depot in order to carry all of the mourners. The mourners included Mr. French's son, Julius, who lived in Cleveland. And after the services, a caravan followed Mr. French's remains as he was taken to Willoughby Cemetery and laid to rest at 4 p.m. His family knew full well that this was an era rampant with body snatchers, people who would steal the newly dead quickly from their graves in order to sell them to medical colleges, which were always on the lookout for fresh cadavers for their students to dissect and study. Mr. French's son, Julius French, hired the cemetery sexton, Mr. E. Bliss, to look in on his father's grave throughout the night. It wasn't uncommon for those who could afford it to arrange for such guards for as long as it took for the body to decompose enough that it would be of little use to the schools. The watchman looked in on the grave several times during the evening, and all was well, until it was not. He paid a final visit at 1 a.m. when he could see, even from a distance, that the earth was upturned and carriage tracks were pressed into the ground. He hurried forward and saw that the coffin was exposed and empty. A dispatch was immediately sent to Julius French to let him know his father's body had been stolen. Closer to home there in Willoughby, the daughter and son-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Bryce, were immediately notified, and the son-in-law quickly hurried to the cemetery. He and a few men searched the area, and they found the broadcloth coat that Mr. French had been buried in. Drag marks indicated the body had been pulled from the coffin by the neck and dragged some distance to reach the waiting carriage, and that coat, now muddy, had been drawn off in the act. The wagon tracks were aimed west toward Cleveland. Even at that early hour, a mob of townsmen quickly formed. Reportedly, a hardware store was opened and emptied of knives and revolvers, and the posse, led by the son-in-law, Mr. Bryce, headed for Cleveland. Two men were even placed on horseback to gallop as hard as they could in the direction of the city and, if possible, overtake the robbers, or at least slow them down. Back in Cleveland, Julius rushed to the central police station, and officers were dispatched to each of the medical colleges in the hopes of catching a handoff while it was underway. They stayed and watched each of the schools till daybreak, but didn't see a thing. Just before 6.30 a.m., an officer spotted a suspicious buggy, its wheels covered in mud and parked haphazardly at a livery stable on Rockwell Avenue. He looked closer and found locks of gray hair on the footboard. The police woke the owner of the stable to ask what he knew, and the owner said he lent the vehicle to two young men. He was quite upset, saying they returned at 3 a.m., clearly had ridden the horse very hard, and left the carriage in poor condition. He was able to name one of the men, Eugene Joyner, someone already known to police as a body snatcher. 
by 8 a.m., police made their first arrest. They found Joyner, with little trouble, at his home on Hamilton Street. And for a short time, he denied any involvement, but pretty quickly, after some pressing, he finally confessed and named his accomplice, Edwin C. Carlyle, a young doctor who lived in the suburbs. He also told police where they would find the body, at Homeopathic Hospital College on Prospect Street. Not sure whether to believe him, police obtained search warrants for all three medical schools, and teams headed for all of them. Detectives Reeves and Hulligan drew the straw for the homeopathic hospital college and, with Julius French in tow, showed up at the doorstep while the dew was still on the ground. They explored the building exhaustively, faculty and the school janitor following them and insisting they had no idea what they were talking about. And nothing was obvious at first. But then they decided to return to the dissection room. The room was long and narrow with boxes of human bones and skulls and a seven-foot-long table in the center. One of the detectives noticed something strange. Beneath the table, an area where the dust had been disturbed. He moved the dust and found floorboards beneath, and the floorboards were nailed down, but they moved the table and pried the boards up, and beneath them discovered a trap door. When they opened that, they saw a large wooden tank that extended under half the room, and within that, a wooden box. And in the center of the box, the naked remains of Mr. French. His arms and limbs were extended. His throat bore a large gash, and his body had been injected with arsenic to prevent any further decomposition. Julius was brought forward to identify his father's body, which he did. By noon the next day, the body was all ready for reburial. Modern records indicate Mr. French is now at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland, so I can only presume the family made alternate arrangements. Anyway, this whole affair made the front page of the New York Times, and Mr. Joyner wasn't the only one arrested. The school's dean, Dr. N. Schneider, its registrar, Dr. S. A. Boynton, and faculty members, Drs. H. H. Baxter and J. E. Smith, were all charged with hiding a stolen corpse. J.W. Covert of Newcastle, Pennsylvania, a 41-year-old medical student, was arrested for hiring and returning the buggy. Also arrested were H.L. Summer, the college's janitor, and T.G. Minor, a saloon keeper at the corner of Cross and Hill Streets, who was one of the body snatchers. A bail of $500 was set, with the professors and janitor all making bail in order to regain their freedom until trial. With such sweeping action, it surely appeared officials were ready to make an example of the college. State legislators had tried to dissuade body snatchers by increasing the penalty, 
the punishment under the original law was 30 days in, quote, a dungeon or cell of the jail on bread and water only. The law was later amended to a fine of up to $1,000 and up to six months in jail. State officials also tried to assist medical schools by agreeing at the same time to give them bodies that were destined for potter's fields throughout the state and unclaimed bodies of anyone who died in a hospital or institution. Apparently, college officials didn't think that was enough. Something I want to mention that really rankled people about this entire Edwin French affair Something that really rankles people about this particular case was learning that Edwin French, so callously ripped from the grave to benefit the school, had actually donated $100 to the school before his death. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. But Mr. French's body was just the first domino because detectives found more victims that day. Two elderly women whose blackened and disfigured bodies were pulled from pickling barrels. Here's the description from a report in the New York Times. So discolored were they from the effects of the pickling water that they scarcely appeared to have been human form. The gray hairs, which had been smoothed by the loving hands of grown-up children when the bodies were laid away in their last resting place, had been rudely tangled and torn from their heads. The clothing was torn, exposing the bare flesh in a revolting manner. Valuable sets of gold plate false teeth, which were buried with the corpse, had been rudely torn from the shrunken gums, and a horrid grin left instead of the peaceful look of death. The bodies had been crushed into the smallest possible compass and packed away in barrels like so much pork for winter's use. Now, officers launched an investigation trying to figure out who these women were. It doesn't sound like the college was forthcoming. But they soon determined that one of them was Mrs. Angeline Higby from Garrettsville, a village in Portage County, about 35 miles up from the school. 
She died on August the 23rd and was buried in a cemetery in Mesopotamia in Trumbull County. Julius French took it upon himself to deliver the news to her family. He sent them a telegraph, telling them if they examined her grave, they would find she was missing. Mr. Knapp, Mrs. Higby's son-in-law, got the telegraph, but before informing anyone else, he certainly didn't want to upset anyone in case the dispatch was wrong, and since he didn't even know Julius French, he hired a carriage and horses and traveled the 13 miles from Garrettsville to Mesopotamia to check the gravesite. The soil over Mrs. Higby's grave didn't look disturbed at all. It was firm, indicating if the body had been removed, it must have been immediately after Mrs. Higby was buried. So the men got some shovels and started digging, and soon enough they came to pieces of loose boards. They removed the boards and could see the coffin was indeed empty nothing but some fabric that had been placed in the box to keep the head held into position. They also uncovered a small handsaw, which had evidently been used by the thieves in opening the coffin. Mr. Knapp returned to Garrettsville to share the sad news with Mrs. Higby's children, who in turn immediately traveled to the Cleveland police station, where officers acquired a search warrant before taking them back to school to identify and collect those pickled corpses. The other body was taken as well, and it was left with an undertaker until they could determine who it was, which they did. At first, detectives only knew that the body had come from Ravenna. That's the seat of Portage County. So Julius French telegraphed an undertaker there and described the circumstances and the probable age of the deceased to enlist his help in figuring out who it was. The first person that came to his mind was Mrs. Pease, whom he had buried in the past month in the Ravenna Cemetery. Mrs. Pease's coffin was opened and found to be empty, and friends went to Cleveland to identify her, only made possible by some scraps of clothing still left on her corpse. All the usual suspects were arrested a second time, more charges brought, then all made bail again to await trial, which in those days was not delayed at all. The trials began just ten days after the bodies had been discovered. Eugene Joyner, who drove Mr. Minor and Dr. Carlisle to the grave to steal Edwin French's body, turned state's evidence against the others. He explained the system by which Homeopathic Hospital College acquired corpses. They paid $25 apiece for any bodies delivered to the school with a goal of acquiring 20 subjects a year. On the night Edwin French's body was taken, arrangements were made by Mr. Minor to leave his wife with a friend in the country at 4 p.m. and then meet up with Dr. Carlisle, who made his own separate arrangements for leaving Cleveland. The pair met some 10 miles on the way to Willoughby in the buggy 
that Eugene Joyner had rented from the livery stable. After wrenching the body from the coffin, they spotted some men in the distance and feared the town had been aroused. Dr. Carlyle told Eugene Joyner they would need to drive the horses hard and fast, but Joyner said he wasn't going anywhere. He demanded to be paid while still at the cemetery. Dr. Carlyle said he'd get no money unless they had a body to sell, but Joyner stood his ground, saying he would as soon die as to go home to a starving wife and children. So one of the two grave robbers, it was either Dr. Carlisle or Mr. Minor, walked up a street to have a closer look at the men they had seen, and they determined they were simply at work decorating the town because Willoughby, the next day, was to be paid a visit by the president. Still, all three of the men were unnerved, and they acted quickly. They bagged the body, dragged it through a cornfield to get it to the buggy, leaving the grave a complete mess. Then they raced from town as if they knew they were being pursued, not realizing that within the hour, they were. The tools used for raising the body had been obtained from and returned to the homeopathic hospital college, according to Joyner's testimony. And when they arrived with Mr. French, the janitor was waiting to take possession of the body. But we're still not done. We have one more domino to fall in this sad and disturbing case. A fourth body found during the same incident, but one not immediately reported to the public for fear it would lead to riots at the college. A shallow grave was found in a shed on the grounds of the college, and in it, the body of a young boy. It was the eight-year-old son of a local professor and German immigrant, Karl Kuppa. The boy was a musical prodigy and the leader of a juvenile orchestra. He died August the 26th, 1878, from, quote, a disease which baffled the skill of all physicians. He was laid to rest after an extravagant funeral at the Erie Street Cemetery in Cleveland. Friends kept the gravesite covered in a blanket of flowers, believing it would deter any body snatchers and any disturbance of the flowers would let them know they had been there. But the body snatchers got the kid anyway, the trio of Eugene Joyner, Dr. Carlisle, and Mr. Minor finally confessed they had stolen the boy's body three nights after burial and had taken it to the college for dissection. They said they took great care in removing all of the flower arrangements before and replacing them carefully after their work was done. Joyner said he waited with a horse and wagon on one side of the cemetery to keep watch and whistle an alarm if anyone approached. Mr. Minor and Dr. Carlyle dug up the body. Then they scurried off to the college. They had worked so carefully that nobody did notice any of the flowers disturbed. 
When the small corpse was discovered in that shed on the college grounds, college officials begged police to allow them to restore the body quietly and in good order to its original grave. There was particular concern that the German population of Cleveland would be especially reactive if they learned what had happened. Police agreed. The body was given to an undertaker and returned to the Erie Street Cemetery in the dead of night. The whole incident might have come to light immediately because, reportedly, when the shallow grave at the shed was opened, people living nearby were overwhelmed by the stench and went to police to complain. But since police were involved with the secret transfer, they did not interfere. And so, the faculty of the college and the grave robbers were charged with a fourth case of stealing and hiding a corpse. From the college, Dr. Schneider, Smith, and Summer, and the janitor were all convicted of concealing a corpse. Dr. Carlisle and Mr. Minor were also convicted by a jury for stealing the corpse. Their sentences were not reported by any news account I could find, but I did say earlier that each case could have been up to a $1,000 fine and six months in jail. I presume Eugene Joyner, the getaway driver who testified at the trial for the state, was given immunity. But although he came clean, he didn't stay clean. The next year, in June of 1879, Joyner went to Bedford, Ohio, following the funeral of a Mrs. Barrow, who had died of consumption. A local doctor told him to where to find her grave, and Joyner and Mr. Minor went and started digging. Within a few minutes, they broke a window at the head of a coffin, and the air filled with a foul smell. Foul enough that they suspected they did not have the freshly buried corpse they were seeking. Sure enough... Joyner reached down into the coffin, grabbed the ear of the corpse, and it came away in his hand. They were in the right family plot, but had dug up the wrong grave. Joyner and Miner had unearthed Thomas Patterson, the grandfather of Mrs. Barrow, who had died a year earlier and whom she had been buried beside. Here's some karma for you. Thomas Patterson's son was the superintendent of the Cleveland workhouse. Both Joyner and Miner were sent to that very workhouse for 30 days after being convicted of disrupting Mr. Patterson's grave. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.